1999, she strangled her friend, her younger friend, 15-year-old Rachel Barber. She hid her body in a wardrobe for several days before burying it in a shallow grave. And this was all in a sick attempt to try and assume the 15-year-old's identity. She wanted to be as beautiful as Rachel, have that personality and that life. And she thought if she killed her, she could become her. Welcome to the True Crime Sisters podcast. Thank you as always for all the amazing feedback we've received and of course for listening to our podcast. You can find us on social media, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. You can find all our links in the description below. If you like what you hear from us or there's some feedback that you'd like to give us, you can leave us a review or send us an email at truecrimesisters at gmail.com. We've been blown away by all the support that we've received and we've actually hit a milestone this week. We've hit our 10K downloads. Have we? On our, exactly on our one month anniversary. Have so that was quite exciting. Yeah, we've actually, we'll, yeah. we've been doing it for longer than a month, but we've had it released for a month, well, oh. over a month now, but when we hit 10K. So it was a bit exciting. Yeah, I'm glad you follow that stuff. I would have oh, no mate. idea. Obsessively. <laughs> Good on you. Yeah. Awesome. So just wanted to say thank you so much to everyone who's listened. You're all amazing and it's been great. Today's episode is about the disappearance and murder of a beautiful young girl, Rachel Barber, a talented dancer and popular teenager who was finding her way in life and by all accounts just hitting her stride. This case is one that is both disturbing and unexpected and of course devastatingly sad. It's again another case that is the nightmare of every parent, especially with a teenage child. Yeah, absolutely. And it really is. Like, once we get into it, it really is the unexpected. Yeah, it's a horrible case. For Elizabeth Barber, the 1st of March 1999 was a day just like any other, until it wasn't. She began to get anxious as the clock ticked away and her husband and 15-year-old daughter Rachel didn't walk through the front door. That morning, Rachel had been driven by her dad, Michael Barber, to her dance school in Richmond and called out goodbye and I love you to her mum. At the time, Elizabeth had no idea that this was the last time she would hear from her daughter. Rachel Barber was a beautiful 15-year-old girl who excelled as a dancer. In her third term of year nine in high school, she left mainstream school to begin a full-time diploma of dance. She was accepted for a full-time scholarship. So obviously an amazing dancer. Yeah, I've seen videos. She was an amazing dancer. Which reminds me a little bit of the Lindsay Van Blanken case, like these poor girls who are extremely talented, going extremely far in their different fields, and life's cut so short. Yeah, they don't get to reach their full potential. And obviously heaps of potential. And I suppose in both cases, in, in a way, that's why they were the targets. Yeah, exactly. Horrible. She had always struggled academically, but was very well liked and popular. Since beginning her full-time dance course, she felt like she was living her dream. At approximately 7.40pm, Rachel's father Mike called Elizabeth to let her know that Rachel had not hopped off the tram as he was expecting. He was panicking. Mike and Elizabeth made some phone calls to Rachel's friends, her boyfriend and her dance school to see if anyone had seen her that night. When speaking to boyfriend Emmanuel, they were shocked when he reported, I didn't think she would go. Elizabeth asked him what he was talking about. He reported that Rachel had told him that she had been offered a job where she would be provided with new clothes and a lot of money. Earlier that afternoon, she had given her boyfriend a kiss goodbye and off she went to her new job opportunity, letting him know she would call him later. Elizabeth was alarmed with this news. She knew nothing of her daughter and a job interview. 
After speaking to Emmanuel, or Manny as they called him, they contacted the Box Hill Police Station and officially reported her missing. It was 8.45pm. There was no way Rachel's parents could sit quietly at home while their daughter was missing. They called Elizabeth's mother to come over and babysit Rachel's two younger sisters, Ashley Rose and Heather, who were only 11 and 9, while they went out to search for their firstborn child. Elizabeth and Mike took to the streets, beginning their search on the streets of Richmond, where Rachel's dance school was located. They were concerned that the police were not taking the reports of the missing teenager seriously. They were told that Rachel would probably show up for dance the next day. She'd probably just run away, but they were sure this was not the case. And I think that that's a shame that that is unfortunately sometimes the case, that the police will sort of assume that first, because you can imagine... I feel like the police should learn, though. Like, mm. I get that they can't... I guess it happens so often. Yeah, I guess we don't know how often it happens, mm. but it just seems so unfortunate that... I mean, in this case, maybe they couldn't have done anything quick enough, but in a lot of cases, it feels like if they had have stepped in a bit quicker, something could often have been done. Mm. And you can understand as a parent how frustrating that would be to be begging for someone to look for your child and for them to not respond how you would expect them to mm. respond. And I suppose on the other hand, we don't know how many they get and how, and probably the majority do turn up the next day like they say, but for the ones that don't, it's just heartbreaking that the police potentially could have stepped in a little bit earlier. The next morning, Rachel did not show up for dance school. Elizabeth and Mike went there to talk to Rachel's dance teacher and the other students. Nobody thought Rachel had acted strangely the day before, although she had also mentioned the job interview to some of her friends. Her demeanour, as always, was happy and positive. Although Manny did recall that Rachel had said that she was going to meet up with what she described as an older female friend. At this point, Elizabeth and Mike realised it was likely that Rachel had never intended to catch her regular tram home that night. She had made plans to meet up with an older female friend who was going to provide her with clothing and money. Which, I'm, which obviously would have been something she would have been drawn to. And especially for a girl like Rachel, who sort of was in the dancing scene and um, her family weren't super well off, so she probably wasn't always getting new clothes and luxuries and that sort of thing. Elizabeth and Mike walked from shop to shop with photographs of Rachel, hoping that someone would recognise her from the previous day. Many shopkeepers recognised her photo and had seen her in their shop before, but none thought that she had been in the previous day. They grew even more concerned when someone mentioned the idea that she may have been scouted to work at a brothel. Extremely concerned by this suggestion, Elizabeth made contact with the National Prostitutes Collective, which is now known as the Sex Workers Outreach Program. This organisation looks out for the best interest of sex workers and Elizabeth expressed her concerns. The organisation explained to Elizabeth that it was unlikely she'd been scouted for a legal brothel due to her age, but reassured her that they would keep an eye out for anyone matching Rachel's description. Police told the parents that these kinds of cases are generally resolved within 48 hours. But the problem with that is, that is the most crucial part of the... Yeah, exactly. If, someone, if something bad has happened to someone, those 48 hours are crucial. So you can't just be like, it'll be resolved within 48 hours. Well, also... It wasn't, and yeah. it often isn't. And if it's not, that's the worst time to be... I feel like the protocol maybe isn't good enough. Like, if they just don't look into a case for 48 hours... Has like, that changed since this? I don't think this made any big changes mm. to it, no. The family felt as though they were being brushed off. They were asked to bring in photos of Rachel, make a list of all Rachel's friends, and make a statement, but the parents felt as though they were on their own in searching. 
They continued to scour the streets and alleyways of Melbourne, calling out for their daughter. Police made a suggestion that perhaps if Rachel had run away, she wasn't far from home. He told the parents to grab a torch and look underneath the house at night to see if she was hiding there. Although her parents reiterated that no, she wasn't a runaway, they did try the policeman's suggestion, but to no avail. Why would she, if she's like a, the parents would know if she's that type of kid that might be chilling under the house. I think that's what I find so frustrating, like reading these stories. Like, I don't know if every parent says my child wouldn't run away, Mm. but it seems like there are certain kids that wouldn't run away. Like, could not there have been some character witnesses or something? And then the police list, I I actually think there were character Mm. witnesses, but the police just wouldn't budge on it. Police questioned everyone close to Rachel, including her young boyfriend, Manny, inquiring whether it was possible that Rachel was pregnant. He was firm with his no, and as any young teenage boy would be, was extremely embarrassed in having to recount his limited sexual encounters with his young girlfriend. Police went to Camberwell Railway Station to view CCTV footage to see whether Rachel had been there in the hours after she went missing, but she was nowhere to be seen on the tapes. After she had been missing for a few days, her father, Mike, slowly became convinced that she was unlikely to still be alive. She was not the type of girl who liked being away from home. She was very family-orientated and needed that security. Many describe her as being quite naive and not mature for her age. Well, it sounds like the police are involved now and starting to talk to people. Yeah, I think it took a couple of days. And obviously we don't really know what was going on behind the scenes. No. But just um, because I read Rachel's mother's book, I can see from her point of view, she felt very frustrated Mm. that she wasn't being let in on any information. So she felt like they were doing absolutely nothing. Whereas potentially behind the scenes, there was different things taking place. On March 5th, the police came to the Barber house to search Rachel's room for any clue of where she may be. The search didn't turn up anything of significance to the case. There was one man that Mike's was suspicious about, a male work friend of Elizabeth's that had been bothering them in recent times. The man had previously spent a lot of time making phone calls to their house, peeking in the windows and showing up uninvited. At one stage, when Elizabeth was in the shower after going for a swim, when she came out, the man was in her house. She told him to go away. The family decided to put their own surveillance on this man since the police were not doing it, but after some time they realised that he most likely was not involved. The family and many of their friends and extended family continued to head out at night in search of Rachel. They scoured swamps and brothels and dark city streets hoping to stumble across her. Finally, after a week or more of dealing with the uniformed police officers at the Box Hill and Richmond branches, the missing persons unit from the St Kilda Road complex called them to come in and make a statement. Finally, they felt like they were getting some assistance. The missing persons unit made it clear that to them it didn't matter why a person went missing. Their only concern was to find them. This was a huge relief to the Barber family, who were sick of hearing that Rachel was a runaway. The missing persons unit made some call to the Victoria Police Media Liaison Team and the story finally went public. The next day, Rachel's story was on the front page of the newspapers with the headline, Family Fear for Missing Teen. And roughly how long was that after this all happened? I think about three or four days. Mm. After writing down a third list of all the people Rachel knew, including old neighbours, a new name was added to the list. Caroline Reed. Caroline was a daughter of one of the barber's old neighbours when they lived in Mont Albert, before moving to Heathmont. 
Elizabeth had been friends with Caroline's mother, Gail, and had helped her through a tough divorce. Reportedly, before they lost touch, a clairvoyant told Gail that the Barber family would remain their lifelong friends. The Reed family were not a happy family. Like the Barbers, they had three daughters. Caroline was the oldest, and there were two younger sisters. The middle daughter was friends with Rachel, and the youngest sister was friends with the middle Barber daughter, Ashley Rose. Caroline would sometimes babysit for the Barber family and was reportedly just in the background generally. Not long after the third list of people was handed into the police, the Barbers received a phone call. Do you know a Caroline Robertson? Elizabeth replied, No, we only know a Caroline Reed. She was told a Caroline Robinson had made a couple of phone calls to their house in the lead up to Rachel's disappearance. They asked further questions about Caroline and stated that they were making inquiries. The barbers were confused. We haven't seen Caroline since we moved from Mont Albert in December 1997. The police let them know she had called their house twice in the late afternoon of February 28th, the day before Rachel went missing. Just then Mike remembered that he had seen Caroline recently. He had taken Ashley Rose to the younger Reed sister's birthday party and had seen Caroline speaking to Rachel through the open car window. When asked if Rachel and Caroline were friends, the barbers stated that they were more like acquaintances. The police asked the barbers whether the Reed family owned any other properties that they knew of. Mike stated, the father owns a property in the country, in Kilmore. The barber parents were very confused as to why the police would be inquiring about Caroline. It brought some relief that maybe Rachel and Caroline were together, rather than the thought of a random male stranger abducting their daughter. Yes, I think they thought, actually thought it was a relief that mm. possibly the girls had run away together yep. or that Caroline was helping to hide Rachel and that, that that was like a good outcome for them, like we will get Rachel back. Detectives asked the barber parents not to scour the streets or hand out posters but rather to just go home and stay there. They were confused and unsure what was going on behind the scenes but they were happy that the investigation finally seemed to be going somewhere. Not long after, a detective called from the missing persons unit and told the parents that they would be visiting the house at 6pm. At 6pm, three detectives arrived at the Barber household. They sat down with Elizabeth and Mike. There was no easy way of saying this. I'm sorry, Rachel has been murdered. Shocked, Elizabeth Barber asked who killed her daughter. The answer, Caroline Reed Robinson. The Barbers were surprised, as well as being absolutely devastated. They also felt horrible for Caroline's mother, Gail, who was once a close friend, knowing the guilt she would be feeling at this news. And you can imagine, that's just terrible. It's horrible for both families. Mm. As it turns out, Rachel had been spotted after she said goodbye to her boyfriend, Manny, on the 1st of March, 1999. An older sister of one of Rachel's friends had spotted her on a tram. She was sitting with an older girl. The older girl was plain-looking, more heavy-set, and looked out of place next to the very beautiful, young Rachel Barber. It was obvious that the two knew each other. They were talking and seemed comfortable. The girl overheard their conversation, which was mainly about Rachel's boyfriend and her cat. She also stated that Rachel seemed excited. Caroline Reed Robinson had always been a troubled girl. Elizabeth Barber remembered back when they had been neighbours that Gail had always been concerned about her oldest daughter. She was depressed and always seemed to be in her room hiding herself away from the world. She, like Rachel, dropped out of school early, but unlike Rachel, didn't have a talent to fall back on. When she was spotted with Rachel, Carolyn was 20 years old. She lived in a flat in Paran near the Melbourne CBD, which she rented. 
She worked as an administrative assistant for a telecommunications company. She had come to police attention because they discovered that the silent number that had called the Barber family house multiple times was hers. This, coupled with the sighting of Rachel with an older girl and Carolyn's name being on that third list of names allowed them to zero in on her. I wonder why she was calling them to, like, just mess with them? Oh, no, she was... No, not to mess with them. She was calling them to speak to Rachel. Oh, and she just never got through? No, she did get through. she She spoke to Rachel multiple times. Interesting. So this begs the question, why would Caroline, a 20-year-old woman, want to hurt Rachel, a 15-year-old teenager? And what happened? How did this happen? Upon suspecting that Caroline had something to do with Rachel's disappearance, police decided to visit her flat. At the time, they assumed that perhaps Rachel and Caroline had run away together, or that Caroline was hiding Rachel. They went to her house and knocked on her door, but nobody answered initially. Caroline's colleagues told the police that she had been away on an unusual amount of sick leave over the previous 10 days. This was apparently very out of character for her, as she was generally very reliable at work. Colleagues also mentioned that Caroline had spoken of Rachel's disappearance, telling her workmates that she knew Rachel and painting the disappearance as a bit of a joke, lying and saying that Rachel was known to run away, which was untrue. Police went to see Caroline's father to ask him about Caroline. After this, they were able to obtain a spare key from the real estate agent overseeing Caroline's rental flat. After knocking at the door, again, with no response, the police tried the key. It appeared that the door was deadlocked from the inside and they still couldn't get through the door. At this time, they called the Metropolitan Fire Brigade to help them gain entry into the flat. Firefighters were able to gain access to the flat by entering a window and then letting the police officers in. They found a female lying face down on the bedroom floor. It was Caroline. She had taken an overdose of her epilepsy medication. An ambulance was called. Police noted that the flat was untidy and there were boxes everywhere. It looked like someone was getting ready to move out. The ambulance came and took Carolyn to the Alfred Hospital, escorted by a police officer. Police took the opportunity to look around Caroline's flat. They found a bag of clothing in size 8, which did not belong to Caroline, who was a bigger girl. Police wondered if they belonged to Rachel. They found Rachel's name scrawled on paper documents lying around the flat. There was also writing referencing a trip to Sydney. They also noticed a note with the full names and birthdays of the Barber family members along with a heap of personal background information about the family. That's is, creepy. It's disturbing. She's I obviously find. obsessed. Well, like, yeah, she is. Like, writing down their birthdays. She hasn't even seen them for a while. Yeah, it's obvious that she's developed an obsession. Carolyn seemed to know a lot about the Barber family, which was quite creepy since she hadn't been neighbours with them for over a year. There was a document charting Rachel's progress throughout her childhood, which is extremely creepy, I think. Wait, so she had gone... How did she get her hands on this stuff? Okay, so she was present, obviously, during some of Rachel's childhood. Mm. So I'm thinking maybe she was watching Rachel in a way that nobody realised that she was. So she'd kind of seen Rachel grow up in some ways. Then she's obviously... Was she the babysitter? Is that right? She did babysit, yeah. yeah. She did babysit and they were across the road. So she probably started this develop to develop this obsession when Rachel was very young. Like, a lot younger, yeah. Yeah. Because Rachel was obviously a beautiful girl and Caroline maybe never felt that she way. She never felt like she was, which is sad, you know, like, because I get that we all feel that insecurity, but channel that into changing yourself for the better, not into obsessing about someone. And also, like, what's the point? Like, so you're obsessed about someone. 
I mean, how does that turn to... Does she have an illness that makes her... She has... I think from... I mean, we'll get into it later, Mm. but from what I know, um, what I think is that she had personality disorders. So it was kind of a combination, like a perfect storm, I guess, of the obsessive personality, the insecurities, the very low self-esteem, the broken family, and then the personality disorders. Mm. And it was just... A bad mix. I just feel so sorry for the barbers who had no idea that they were, that this girl was like this. Like, yeah, that and was she a may family not have been friend. back then, like. Yeah, and they just weren't to know what the outcome would be because yeah. obviously you'd never let someone like that near your child. But Absolutely not. They weren't to know. Caroline also described Rachel as a free spirit. It also detailed her teenage love interests and her dancing career. The note described Rachel as a strikingly attractive teenager with a dancer's body clear pale skin and hypnotic green eyes. So that's Caroline's description. That's Caroline's description of Rachel, which I guess is it's true. It's like, extremely accurate. She's a gorgeous girl. Just the way that she says it. The it's hypnotic creepy. green eyes. Yeah, it's quite, it is like even obsessive language mm. really, isn't it? Like you wouldn't really write that about. I mean, beautiful green eyes. Beautiful. Hypnotic. She's probably actually hypnotised by, by the beauty. Mm. Another note also provided some insight into how Caroline saw Rachel and described her obsessively. Wild, free spirit who lived life on the edge. A simple yet complicated girl with enormous talent and contradictions. A fiercely independent girl who was passionate, determined, cheeky, loyal and honest. With a moody and mysterious personality. Even that, that's... So creepy. And did she really know her well enough to... I, it's Have almost like, oh, actually, I, I watched a documentary where Rachel's mum was actually saying that Rachel would probably have laughed if she'd heard Caroline describing mm. her this way because Rachel didn't even see herself with this, like, perfection with these rose-coloured lenses that mm. Caroline saw her with. Like, everyone has flaws and it's like Caroline has created a character of who Rachel was, I think you know that, what I mean. I do know exactly what you mean. I think that's exactly right. She had created this image of Caroline. She really idealised her into Mm. this, yeah. So yeah, like we just were saying, so her description is over the top and filled with admiring words and it was clear that she was just absolutely fascinated by her. and completely obsessed. Mm. Meanwhile, Caroline was escorted to the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne and police were able to briefly question her before she said that she was too tired. When asked if she knew where Rachel was, she said, yes, Rachel is dead. When asked what happened, Caroline stated that she accidentally killed her. At this point, Caroline was cautioned. She told police that she had buried Rachel's body on her father's property in Kilmore by a group of trees. At 3.30pm on March 13th, police uncovered a human body wrapped up in blankets and curled up in a fetal position buried in a shallow grave on the Kilmore property. It was Rachel. She had ligature marks around her neck. Her body was taken from the Kilmore property to Melbourne for post-mortem examination. Once Caroline had recovered enough to speak to them, police interviewed her again, this time with her lawyer present. This time, she decided to exercise her legal rights to remain silent. A number of items had been seized from her flat, including writings by Caroline, forensic samples, receipts, clothing an answering machine, and a number of books about the occult. It was clear from the search of the flat that Caroline had an unnatural obsession with Rachel Barber. Police also found an application for a birth certificate under Rachel's name with her details on it in Caroline's writing. It seemed like Caroline had been planning to lure Rachel to the flat and she had used the currency that would appeal most to Rachel's age, clothing and money. 
The police requested samples from Caroline, including blood, hair, fingerprints, and dental impressions. She would only give them the fingerprints. That evening, Caroline was formally charged with the murder of Rachel Barber. So she was trying to like take on almost her identity. Assume her identity. Like it's almost like I don't I don't know that she thought about it super logically mm. because of course doing things like that are gonna draw attention to you. But I mean, yeah, cool. If you take on Rachel's name, you're never gonna be Doesn't the mean beautiful you are, young yeah. dancer. Yes. It's almost like she got so delusional in her head that she thought that if she killed Rachel and started the process of these changing her name and um, moving to a new place that she could like be more like Rachel. Yeah, exactly. Delusional. Mm. The family were absolutely devastated by the news, of course. To lose their daughter in this way is something that no parent should ever have to go through. Elizabeth's sister, Robbie, made a public statement. Elizabeth and Michael are endeavouring to bear the unbearable. They are being supported by loving family and friends. We have all been devastated by the death of their beloved daughter, Rachel. Elizabeth and Michael want the family of the woman charged with murdering Rachel to know that they feel nothing but compassion for them. Rachel's burning light has been dimmed, but will burn bright in our hearts forever. She will always be young, beautiful, happy, smiling and dancing in our hearts. So, it's so big yeah, of the parents. Her family sounds like, amazing. So, yeah, absolutely. Like, can you imagine? Mm, her family just sound ex- like exceptional people, really, really amazing to people. To publicly put that out there to kind of alleviate some of mm. that guilt that they must be feeling, that is, it's big of them because they would be, like, so consumed by their own grief. To be able to still to care to still about, somebody about somebody else. else. Yeah, exactly. It's amazing. A plot was chosen for Rachel in a new cemetery in Lilydale. Her burial plot was bordered by stunning native gardens and a lovely view through to the Dandenong Ranges. On the 24th of March, 1999, 850 mourners turned up to farewell Rachel at St. Hilary's Anglican Church in Kew. Rachel's funeral was a celebration of the life she lived, shared by everyone who loved her dearly. Carolyn Reed Robinson first appeared in the Magistrate's Court on the 15th of March, 1999. She was charged with one count of murder. There was no application for bail. The court was told that Caroline was very unwell. She was not required to enter a plea at that stage. Carolyn's committal hearing was put off for 10 months. Her lawyer was Colin Lovett, who was also Greg Domasavage's lawyer, who we mentioned in the Jaden Lesky episode, so he was a very good lawyer. Colin Lovett told the court how his client had amnesia about what had happened during the murder of Rachel Barber. She remembered ordering pizza with Rachel beforehand, but didn't remember the act itself. She also maintained that while she was involved in the offence and disposal of Rachel's body, she was not the sole perpetrator. Her accomplices had abandoned her. At this stage, her plea was not guilty. Many people were interviewed about Carolyn Reed Robertson, but nobody who knew her described her as a friend. Her work colleagues had at times had lunch with her or chats with her, but they did not consider her a friend and did not see her socially. She was an acquaintance. Caroline didn't get along with her mother, and while she longed for her father's attention, he was not around as much as she would have liked. Which is obviously sad. This was stark contrast to the life of the object of her obsessions, Rachel Barber, who had a very close-knit and involved family, She wished she could be beautiful, popular and confident like Rachel, but she wasn't. And rather than taking the steps needed to change her life, Caroline took Rachel's. After Caroline killed Rachel, she stored her in the cupboard in her flat for two days before she was able to hire a rental truck. She wrapped Rachel up in a rug 
and told the truck driver that it was a statue she needed transported. Caroline was seen by two neighbours of the Kilmore property after Rachel's death, along with a white van moving a bag across the lawn to a spot underneath the trees where Rachel was eventually found. I can't believe she did that. Who the hell does that? Got, gets the removal guys to come in and actually move the body. Yeah. To me, that's really bizarre. Like, what would what would you expect to happen? Like, put it... Like, um, it sounds horrible, but a lot of people would, you know... Does she not have a driver's licence or something? Or? No, she didn't have a driver's okay. licence. Like, not move her over so that distance? You just have a dead body lying in your flat? I would... No, I would never do any of this. I mean, obviously you've never I'm just saying... I'm sorry, like, I haven't heard... I'm just saying what I'm saying is I haven't heard of somebody getting it just sounds really bizarre getting this third party in well it's, she had the property in Kilmore mm. where it was like it's I feel like in this situation like a perpetrator just wants to get the body as far away from themselves as possible I also think um it's a bit silly on her part to have buried Rachel at her father's property if she didn't want to get caught like of course that's one of the first places the police are going to look I wonder if she put other things in the moving van too I know that's just a weird thing to say but in my head just goes that's just, aren't the moving guys going to get there and go, this is a bit weird? Yeah. I guess they don't They care. may have, yeah. but at we the end of the know. day they're getting paid and they probably don't want to question someone who's paying their wages. Just Like, what are they going to say? It just sounds so weird to me. It is weird, but yeah. obviously this girl's not of sound, normal mind. The more police dug into Caroline's life before Rachel's disappearance, the more they realised how planned and calculated the murder was. Caroline had set up a post office box so that documents related to Rachel, for example, the birth certificate, could be sent to her undetected. Notes in her flat spoke of recreating her identity. She was going to become Jem Southall, with Southall being Elizabeth Barber's maiden name, and she was going to have cosmetic surgery to become more attractive and move to Byron Bay, where beautiful people lived. That's so sad. she had a whole yeah. plan, yeah. Yeah, she had a whole plan. It's disturbing, but it's also sad. It's all, it's just tragic all around. Like, it's sad, like, because you kind of go, oh, well, uh, if only she had have had a happier childhood, maybe none of this would have happened. Mm. But then as well, you can't blame her parents because everyone just does the best they can. It's just a horrible situation. Finally, Carolyn admitted that it was her and her alone that killed Rachel. She decided that she would plead guilty and spare the Barber family the torture of a trial. On Monday the 27th of November 2000, the Barber family learnt that the judge had made a decision in the sentencing of Caroline Reed Robertson. Caroline was led into the court with her head bowed, avoiding eye contact with the people sitting in the stands. The judge spoke to Caroline's cruel planning, offering Rachel things that would be attractive and tempting to a child her age, possessed subtlety and demonstrated the operation of a devious mind and manipulative abilities. The judge said Rachel was killed for her family, personality, beauty and above all happiness and success she was likely to experience in her life that Caroline had decided that she would never be able to experience. The judge also expressed some empathy for Caroline. It was obvious that she suffered extremely low self-esteem and was very unhappy with all aspects of herself and her life. It was incredibly sad that instead of working on herself and improving her circumstances, maybe even seeking counselling, Caroline resorted to killing Rachel, which did not in any way improve her life and ruined so many others. Caroline was sentenced to 20 years in prison with a non-parole period of 14 years and 6 months. So she was actually released from the Dame Phyllis Frost Centre 
uh, which is a woman's jail in Melbourne on the 20th of January, 2015. So she's actually been out for a couple of mm. years now. Um, she just has parole conditions. Like she can't break the law. She has to do the mandatory reporting and um, she has to notify a parole officer if she's going to be moving. Is she like known of where she lives and stuff or nah, is it? I couldn't find anything about not where she Not that we want to say where I mean, she no, lives. Not that I was going to say it, but I was just kind of like looking for mm. recent information. There's not a lot of information about her since 2015 when yeah. she was released. So you can kind of assume that she probably hasn't done anything wrong since then. And I know the family strongly didn't want any vigilante people to sort of go after no. Caroline. They spoke out that they wanted Caroline to just not hurt anyone else, that she can go and live her life. And um, Elizabeth Barber said that she hopes Caroline gives something back to society and, like, does something good for the world to at least, you know, make up a little bit of all the wrongdoing she's done. This is such a sad case. It's hard to understand how anyone could be killed out of pure jealousy. The only reason Rachel lost her life is because she was happy and someone else with a sick mind wanted what she had. And now a family is without their beautiful daughter and sister and a stunning, happy girl who was destined for success never got to live her life to its full potential. Yeah, just as like a finishing thought, I suppose like just with young, impressionable teenagers, that's probably their most impressionable age. So just hopefully making kids aware that just don't trust everyone. Like it's just scary, isn't it? Like. Yeah. I just think, yeah, about that age and just how if someone had literally said something like that to me, not about just so naive, mm. like you just are not, you just take everything at face mm. value. If someone's telling you, I can get you this, it's like, wow, can you? Like, isn't yeah. that, it's just sad. I suppose we just need to be aware of it. It's just sad. And it's just scary. a matter of really giving your children the tools to be able to go with their gut feeling mm. about what people are like and who you should trust, who you shouldn't trust. And yeah, and I suppose it's something you need to think about. Like, you've something you've I need a little to think preteen. About. I've got a preteen yeah. and this story, yeah, it's devastating. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for joining us for Episode 8 of the True Crime Sisters podcast. Don't forget to follow us on social media. Again, you can find all our links in the description below. And stay tuned after our outro to hear a promo from one of our podcast friends. True Crime Island is another Australian true crime podcast produced by our friend Cambo. If you love true crime, you'll love his podcast, so check it out. And stay tuned to see what he has to say about True Crime Island. Please join us next week for episode nine of the True Crime Sisters podcast. And until then, please stay safe. Hi, I'm Cambo from True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. Every two weeks, I'll bring you true crime stories from all over the world. Go to my website, truecrimeisland.com, where you can download or stream each episode or search for me on iTunes or your favourite podcatcher. So grab a beer and pull up a deck chair and listen to True Crime Island.